As a warning, this episode includes descriptions of violent acts. Please be advised. It's early November 1861, Port Royal Sound, South Carolina. This is seven months after the first shots of the Civil War were fired, nearby at Fort Sumter. Captain Samuel F. Dupont, an admiral in the United States Navy, steers his warships towards South Carolina's Sea Islands, heading for Port Royal Sound. The fleet starts firing on Fort Walker and Fort Beauregard, and in a matter of hours, they defeat the Confederates, capturing the Sea Islands and the main port of Port Royal. Arriving on shore, the Union soldiers find Beaufort and the surrounding area empty, with only the enslaved Africans left behind. And so you have this question now, what's the next step? Abandoned by their masters, they were neither enslaved nor emancipated. And as soon as the next day, enslaved Africans from around the area came flowing into Port Royal Sound in hope of freedom. As folks heard the booms of the cannons, somehow they realized that probably meant freedom. Then folks who were further in of the interior of the state began to filter down because there was no buffer, there was no patrols, there was no one that could stop them. Michael Allen is a historian who retired from the National Park Service after working there for nearly 40 years. Now what do we do? We may have had 10,000, we may be up to 20,000. What do we do now? Still considered to be property, the Union called these new arrivals contraband and established what was called the Port Royal Experiment. The goal was to give these formerly enslaved South Carolinians the means and opportunity to live free from any master. They were given land and wages. Educators came from the North to set up schools. But I think at the end of the day, humanity reigned. And I say that because those who came either from a military perspective or from a social community perspective realized that they were in the midst of something that was great, that was different, that was groundbreaking, and that it needed to be done right. This is a South Carolina Legacy of Courage podcast, a series where historians and experts help us explore the state's significant role in the civil rights movement. You'll also hear the real stories of people who were there and who made a difference, and why what took place in South Carolina then is still so relevant today. This is the first of three podcast episodes, and we begin in the 19th century by identifying critical historical events that plunged the nation into a civil rights crisis. Union Army soldiers took over South Carolina's Sea Islands. The word spread, and now thousands of enslaved South Carolinians arrived seeking freedom. They came in the fall of 1861. I'm old enough because I grew up native to the soil. That's cotton time. So Siena Cotton was the major thing happening in this area. That's Ahmad Ward, executive director of the historic Mitchellville Freedom Park. The Union Army was hoping that they'd be able to benefit off of Sea Island cotton because it was just a, a different grade of cotton and it was a higher grade and, and softer and stronger. So it was in high demand in Europe and other places. 
Working those cotton fields were the Gullah Geechee people, whose ancestors lived and worked in the rice-growing regions of West Africa. They were brought to North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida to work on rice, cotton, and indigo plantations. And they developed a culture, like the spirituals you're hearing now. Historian Michael Allen explains how that culture was formed. But you have people from different regions who perhaps had not intertwined with each other before, now thrust in the belly of a ship, arriving on Sullivan's Island, making it through the slave trade and slave sails of Charleston, and now being diffused northward as far as the Cape River in Wilmington, North Carolina, or southward as far as the St. John's down in the Jacksonville area today. That breadth and scope of the coastal four states gives us Gullah culture, history, preservation, legacy, religion, food, way of life, language. With the Union Army in charge of the area, the number of people who fled to Port Royal and the surrounding Sea Islands swelled to 10,000. They weren't enslaved, but they weren't quite free either. Soon, questions about their future started growing louder. How do we tamp down this trepidation that we're hearing from people about, okay, after you free these folks, are we going to have to take care of them? Right. So that's, this is a big deal during the time frame. Like, yeah, we freed them. Then what? Can they be self-sufficient? Can they work on their own? We don't know. Are they going to be on the government's dime forever? Is it our responsibility? The overwhelming sense was that they didn't want to have that responsibility. So in 1862, what was known as a Port Royal experiment began to take shape. It was a noble attempt by the federal government to provide the full promise of American citizenship to the formerly enslaved. Its purpose was to create a blueprint for how Reconstruction could unfold throughout the South. In September of 1862, General Ormsby Mitchell arrived and was put in charge of the region. He saw an opportunity and gave about 600 to 700 acres to the people now being called contraband. And says, this is your land, you build on it, you grow on it. It's an opportunity to protect your families, to have your own soil, to create schools and churches and businesses and be citizens of something. So this is a fairly big deal for this time frame because these folks went from being property to owning property. This became the town of Mitchellville, named in General Mitchell's honor. Residents received a quarter of an acre of land, where they built 12 by 15-foot homes. They made around $4 a month and governed themselves through a council operating under the supervision of the Army. If one of the Union soldiers wanted to go into Mitchellville, they had to have the appropriate paperwork. So if they did not have appropriate pass, they could be turned around at the gate and be made to go go back. So that notion of a black person telling a white man in uniform to not come in is an alien concept even deep into the mid-20th century, let alone the 19th. Mitchellville thrived. At its height, the population hit 3,000. The town was talked about as far away as Chicago and New York. And so one of the things that Mitchell wanted them to do was to really push education. The people took that ball and ran with it because they understood that 
even if they were re-enslaved, no one could take what was happening up here from them in their brains. And so Mitchellville is the site of the first mandatory school system in the state of South Carolina. By now, missionaries, educators, and ministers from up north had arrived in the area to help shape the Port Royal experiment. In Mitchellville, children ages 6 to 15 were required to go to school. As Mitchellville started to rise on Hilton Head Island, another development called Penn School, located several miles away, across tidal marshes and creeks, opened its first school in the South for formerly enslaved people. By 1865, it had expanded to three buildings. It is now called Penn Center, a portion of which is part of the Reconstruction-era National Historical Park. And by 1866, back at Mitchellville, more than 200 children attended school. The emphasis on education and self-governance in Mitchellville and the South Carolina Low Country was followed by a rising political class of African Americans in South Carolina. In 1868, the state had a majority black legislature and a legacy that endures. And because of what's able to happen here with Mitchellville and Penn Center and, and other situations in the Port Royal Experiment, you have built this drive for political power with black people in this region. And so by the time we get to Reconstruction, even after Reconstruction is sabotaged, there's still a black power structure and political power going into the 20th century. And I think the cause and effect of the Port Royal Experiment is one of the reasons why there's been some sort of black power structure in this county for the last 160 some years. Taking a pause here to say that if you're interested in following South Carolina's legacy of courage, go to sclegacyofcourage.com, where you will find stories and information on this history. There's also a link there to the popular greenbookofsc.com, an online travel guide of more than 400 African-American historic sites. Or you can visit civilrightstrail.com. It's a great way to begin planning your trip. Okay, back to the story. The date was May 12th. 1862, the Port Royal experiment was taking form while the Civil War waged on. Robert Smalls was an enslaved Gullah Geechee man working aboard the planter, a steamboat hired by the Confederacy to help in the war. Smalls was a boat's pilot, navigating the vessel through low country waterways. He knew that just outside the mouth of the Charleston Harbor sat the Union blockade and freedom. That May evening, the planter's captain and crew disembarked and went into town, leaving Smalls and other enslaved crew members behind. Smalls had been waiting for a moment like this to escape, and he decided to commandeer the ship himself and sail it to freedom. Michael Bulware Moore is Robert Small's great-great-grandson. On the night of May 12th, the morning of May 13th, 1862, Robert got his family and the crew, the other enslaved crew and their families. He donned the long top coat and hat of the Confederate captain and 
head out. And with the darkness of night and that distance, because he was the pilot, he knew the various passcodes. I think there were four or five forts that he had to sail past, and, and he successfully maneuvered through all five and, and sailed to the USS Onward, which was leading the Union blockade and was free. This act of bravery made Smalls a hero in the North and to enslave people in the South. It also made him an enemy of the Confederacy, where there was a bounty on his head. He so angered the Confederacy that 150 years later, someone came up to me at an event. Someone came up to me very emotional and said to me, I am angry with Robert and I am angry with you because I trace my ancestry back to the Confederacy and he embarrassed the Confederacy. Who was this man with steely nerves behind such a daring escape? Robert's mother was domestic. Robert grew up around the big house with the master. And so he was able to live with his mother and, and receive her love and care and tutelage and the like. I think. Robert was just a, a bright, precocious kind of young man. He had seen, had experienced um, what freedom was like by observing it up close in a way that perhaps other enslaved people couldn't. And he had the benefit of growing up with his mother, my great-great-great-grandmother Lydia, who no doubt just invested in him just an enormous amount of love and sense of self-esteem and the like. And, I think you put all those things together and when he had the opportunity with his family to protect them and to strive for freedom, he took his life and the life of his family in his hands and sailed to freedom. Smalls received a reward for delivering the planter to the Union Navy. One of the first things he did with the money was to pay tutors to teach him how to read and write. His notoriety rocketed him to Washington, where he convinced President Lincoln to enlist formerly enslaved men into the army to fight in the Civil War. Smalls himself was one of the first African-American pilots in the U.S. Navy. By the time the Civil War ended, he was a huge celebrity, and that fueled his rise in politics. In 1868, he won a term as a representative in the South Carolina State House. And while there, he wrote the legislation to create the first free compulsory statewide public school system in South Carolina, but that was the first in America. There were public schools in America, but they were kind of one-off institutions for the poor, whereas this was a compulsory system for people without regard to income or race, frankly, as well. I think his personal relationship with education was at the core of that. Robert had a way of looking at things that he wanted, achieving them, extending those things to his family, and then figuring out a way to extend them broadly. Same with education. He wanted to be educated. It, it really bothered him. It hurt him that he was prevented from learning how to read and write from going to school as a child. But when he had the means, he not only paid for tutors for himself, but he sent his daughter, my great-grandmother Elizabeth, up to a boarding school in New England. But then he, as well, wanted to extend that even more broadly and created the legislation to build the public school system in South Carolina. Smalls eventually leveraged his reputation to win a seat in Congress, 
where he served five terms in the U.S. House. But his fame and how he got it came with a price. There were all kinds of bogus lawsuits and accusations made against him that he had to fight to remain in Congress and, and frankly, to maintain his liberty. Robert Smalls ended up buying the house of his former enslaver in Beaufort and turned it into his family home. He spent much of his adult life as a free man in the house where he grew up enslaved. I think the, the greatest legacy is around believing in something, even if it is seemingly beyond the scope of reality for you, but believing in it, coming up with a plan, and just having the sheer audacity to go for it. In 1868, South Carolina had a majority Black legislature. One of Robert Small's colleagues was a man named Junius Mobley. Just three years earlier, Mobley had been freed from enslavement in rural Union County, about 70 miles northeast of Columbia, the state capital. Before he was emancipated, Mobley was a leader in Union County's African-American community. Historians believe that he could read and write, and was fairly educated, and he quickly became part of a community of African Americans in Union County who were organized and held political power. Mobley won an election into the state legislature in 1868, and a few years later, he ran for a seat in the state Senate against his former enslaver. Historian Kate Borchard Shane, with South Carolina State Parks, says white supremacists targeted Mobley during that campaign. They painted him in this light that made him seem like very, very radical and very fearful. And so the goal of that painting of him in this light was so that white people would be afraid and would and would activate and use their position of privilege and their position of power to ensure that he didn't become elected. So the backlash is so severe within those two, three years that by the next election, when he is running, when Junius Mobley is running again, people are much more terrified. There's, there's much more restrictions for voting. We see much less Black people coming out to vote because of the kind of violence that's happening. People are being beaten at the polls. Ballots are being taken out of boxes. There's a lot of tampering with votes. And so we think that's the situation that happened when he ran again. As African-American lawmakers began losing their seats in the state legislature, the schools built to educate the next generation of Black leaders started shutting down. There's a consolation of reasons why the schools closed, including a drop in students as newly freed people fled the South. Back in Mitchellville, the once bustling coastal town run by formerly enslaved South Carolinians began to shrink. The Union Army left in 1868, taking most of the jobs and dealing a blow to the town's economy. Residents also left Mitchellville for higher ground inland to escape the storms. Again, here's Ahmaud Ward from historic Mitchellville's Freedom Park. And then in 1893, the Great Sea Islands hurricane comes in and just wipes out everything. Kills about 2,500 people along the Sea Islands coastline. Uh, it's America's greatest natural disaster for a number of years. 
and half of Hilton Head is underwater. And Beaufort County is, is in really bad shape. And the government does not move to repair this uh, area for a long period of time. In 1871, about the time Junius Mobley lost his race in the Senate, and less than a decade after the start of the Port Royal experiment, vigilante groups of white supremacists, enraged by the prospect of equality with former slaves, started to form. The number of lynching incidents grew, particularly in the northern part of the state, known as the upcountry it becomes more and more formalized and more nationalized during Reconstruction, but there's actually a group in the upcountry that operated an early Reconstruction called the Slickers. And they're basically like a pre-Klan, proto-Klan white supremacist group that enacted vigilante violence. In early 1871, what's now known as the Union County Jail Raid Massacre occurred. A group of Black members of the South Carolina militia came across a white bootlegger. A fight ensued, and the bootlegger was killed. The militia men fled, but a group of Black men, some involved, some not, was rounded up and sent to the Union County Jail. Hundreds of Klan members from North and South Carolina raided the jail and dragged out 12 of those black men. The first night of the raid, they kill several of the men, uh, several of the militia members and, and other black men who were taken from the jail escape. They are all later recaptured and rejailed. And then there's a second effort. So then there's a second night where these clan members come again and they remove the remaining people and they kill the majority of the rest of them. Robert Smalls, the daring steamboat pilot who steered the planter to freedom and went on to become a U.S. congressman, lived to be 75 years old. That was long enough to hear about the Union County jail raid, to see the majority Black South Carolina legislature that he was a part of in 1868 transform into a mostly white legislature, long enough to feel the increase in white violence, and from his home in Beaufort, some five miles from where the Port Royal experiment took place, he lived long enough to witness the end of Reconstruction and the rise of Jim Crow. I think it must have been terribly disheartening for Robert to just see all that was happening. I mean, I think he fought so much, so hard, so long to be free and to, to create Reconstruction, to level the playing field for formerly enslaved people, and then to have those rights sort of pulled from underneath them. It, it just had to be just an enormous blow. In response to the movement towards equality, white supremacy groups ushered in a wave of terror and violence. That brought an end to the freedom that was intended some 10 years earlier with the idea of the Port Royal Experiment. The next episode in this podcast series is called Separate is Not Equal. It covers the rise of activism during the movement and the litigation that activists filed to secure civil rights. 
these were young men and women who were shaped in the mid to late 50s. These are young men and women who are part of what some have described as the Emmett Till generation. Um, they are aware of the profound inequities, but they are also mindful that they can be agents of change. After listening to the podcast, plan a trip through Beaufort County, Hilton Head, Mitchellville, and Union County. You can visit the Reconstruction Era National Historic Park and the Penn Center. At the Tabernacle Baptist Church in Beaufort, you'll see a bus of Robert Smalls, and nearby you'll find the Gullah Museum of Hilton Head. Go to sclegacyofcourage.com, greenbookofsc.com, or civilrightstrail.com to begin planning your trip. In this episode, we heard from Michael Allen, Ahmad Ward, Michael Bulware Moore, and Kate Borchard Shane. I'm Marlene Gordon. The South Carolina Legacy of Courage podcast is sponsored by Discover South Carolina. The series was produced by Ingredient Creative with Tanner Latham as executive producer and Catherine Welch as the writer. Elliot Majerzik edited and mixed the sound, and research was provided by Archival Ninjas.